1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for downloading episode 141 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last show, after Stonewall Jackson was given an independent command of the newly formed Valley District, he set up his headquarters in Winchester, and then he embarked on two operations that met with mixed, if not outright dubious results. First came the December 1861 outing to destroy Dam Number 5 on the Potomac River in an attempt to cripple the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. But Jackson's success there was only temporary since the Federals had the damage repaired in a few
1: days. Then came the miserable expedition in January 1862 against Bath and Romney in the mountainous country northwest of Winchester, a campaign marred not only by brutal weather, but also by hard feelings between Stonewall and unhappy subordinates, and between Loring's soldiers and the men of the Stonewall Brigade. After eventually receiving orders from Richmond to evacuate the newly-seized Romney, Jackson had little to show to justify the expedition. The suffering endured by men and animals in the harsh wintertime conditions, and the unseemly bickering that erupted immediately afterward, turned the campaign and its aftermath into a debacle.
0: For his part, Jackson was furious over what he believed had been a missed opportunity to capture all the Federals at Bath, and he subsequently attempted to court-martial Colonel William Gillum for allowing the Yankees to escape. As y'all recall, Gillum had been a fellow faculty member with Jackson at VMI before the war and then had led a brigade in the assault on Bath. In January, after the conclusion of the Bath-Romney operation, Gillum had resigned from the service and returned to his teaching position at VMI, so Jackson's charges against him weren't aggressively pursued by the Confederate War Department. But that didn't prevent and upset Gillam from firing back at Stonewall's accusations. He placed the blame for the failure at Bath on Jackson, pointing out the general's questionable decision to use the militia instead of the Stonewall Brigade in the attempt to cut off the
1: Federals. To be fair, it seems that both Gillam's feeble attack on Bath, as well as Jackson's poor judgment in deploying the militia, were at fault in allowing the Federals to escape the place. In any case, Gillum's brigade had been a part of Loring's command, and after the Bath-Romney expedition, nearly one-fifth of Loring's force was sick during January and February, which was a major factor in the rift between Loring and Jackson, and between Loring's men and the soldiers of the Stonewall Brigade. Loring's troops came to despise Jackson's men, accusing the regiments of the Stonewall Brigade of receiving preferential treatment during the Winter Campaign and its aftermath that resulted in greater discomfort for Loring's troops. The matter came to a head when Jackson ordered his Stonewall Brigade, under the command of Richard Garnett, to return to Winter Quarters at Winchester while instructing Loring's command to remain at Romney.
0: In late January, there then transpired the unseemly episode with Loring's angry subordinates sending a petition to Richmond, giving vent to their discontent over, as they saw it, the rough and unfair handling of their troops by Jackson. Loring forwarded the petition through proper channels, but he also went behind Jackson's back to lobby Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Secretary of War Judah P. Benjamin to get his brigades withdrawn from Romney. The result was that Davis, through Benjamin, wasted little time in ordering Jackson to pull Loring's men back to Winchester. Stonewall was unhappy with such interference with his command, but he swiftly complied with the order. Then, however, he tendered his resignation.
1: As he no doubt intended it would, Stonewall's resignation, sent through proper channels, had a significant shock effect on his superiors, both at Joe Johnston's headquarters and at the Confederate War Department. But Jackson showed that he was not above playing politics to get his way, and he opened a backdoor correspondence with Virginia Governor John Letcher, knowing that Letcher would bring considerable influence to bear to keep him at his boat, at his post in command of the Valley District. And that's just what happened. Jackson then worked to formally punish Loring and during the first week of February, he forwarded a list of charges, accusing Loring of neglect of duty during the recently concluded campaign. As with Gillum, though, there was no court-martial, since Jefferson Davis decided carrying the charges through wouldn't do the Army any good. The War Department did placate Jackson, though, by removing Loring from the Valley District. In fact, Loring was promoted to Major General by Jefferson Davis and transferred away from the Shenandoah. Unfortunately for Stonewall, much of Loring's command was also taken away, significantly reducing the strength of his force in the valley. After Loring's Tennessee, Georgia, and Arkansas regiments were parceled out to other commands, Jackson managed to hang on to the remaining five Virginia regiments and lone battalion, and so by March 3rd, Stonewall's Valley Army had become an all-Virginia force, but of just three brigades, containing ten regiments of infantry, one five-company infantry battalion, one regiment of cavalry, and five artillery batteries, numbering 26 guns. At the start of January, Jackson's command had totaled over 8,000 men, but by early March, his army had been whittled down to little more than 4,500 men to defend Winchester against an advancing Union army.
0: That advancing Union force greatly outnumbered Stonewall's Valley Army. The Federals moving up the valley toward Winchester were commanded by Nathaniel Banks. If we backtrack to July of 1861, y'all might recall how the Union's General Robert Patterson had fallen into disgrace for allowing Joseph Johnston's army to leave the Shenandoah Valley and move to Manassas, where it played a significant role in the Confederate victory there. Well, shortly after that, a northern newspaper with some interesting information arrived at Patterson's headquarters on the Potomac. The paper reported that President Lincoln had made a major general out of one Mr. Nathaniel Prentice Banks, a prominent Massachusetts politician.
1: The commander of the 2nd Massachusetts, Colonel George H. Gordon, had known Banks slightly back home, and he was asked by other officers at Patterson's headquarters what he thought of the newspaper report. Gordon said he doubted the report because Banks, quote, has too much sense and good judgment to assume the responsibilities of such rank until he has fitted himself in subordinate positions to know something of a soldier's profession in which Gordon, by his own account, was about to add the words in which he is now totally inexperienced when there came a knock at the door. It was a courier with a dispatch announcing that Major General Banks would arrive shortly to assume command from Patterson.
0: Colonel Gordon was right in his assessment that Banks was totally inexperienced in military matters. Not only was Banks utterly ignorant about soldiers and armies, but only a few years before he had bragged of that fact, saying that he was, quote, not acquainted with the details of military matters and personally have no pride in them, end quote. But that apparently wasn't of much importance, since by 1861, Banks was probably the most popular political figure in New England, and Abraham Lincoln needed his support, so the president appointed him a major general of volunteers, despite the fact Banks had no military training or experience.
1: In his book, Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins writes, quote, The 41-year-old Banks enjoyed great fame as a political moderate who had risen from the squalor and drudgery of a Massachusetts cotton mill to become Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and Governor of Massachusetts, but he was a two-star military neophyte. That he had personal courage, strength of purpose, a keen intellect, and considerable personal charm, few doubted. Without those traits, this indifferently educated son of a cotton mill foreman never could have accomplished his miraculous public rise in Massachusetts.
0: Cousins continues, writing, "...to compensate for his lack of schooling, Banks cultivated a patrician image. He convincingly camouflaged his working-class background with the studied air of dignity and deliberation." An interest in temperance led him into politics in the 1830s, and his melodic voice and captivating appearance, he had what one contemporary called a genius for being looked at, led the Democrats to select him as a stump speaker in the 1840 presidential election. For the next two decades, Banks would make politics his business and livelihood, in late 1855, Banks joined in organizing the Republican Party in an irrefutable commitment to the anti-slavery movement, end quote.
1: Banks was at heart a good man who endorsed universal suffrage, the shorter work hour movement, and other progressive reforms. He married for love, asking for the hand of a factory girl with whom he enjoyed a long and happy marriage. But Nathaniel Banks, of course, would need more than charm and affability to defeat Stonewall Jackson.
0: When Lincoln appointed Banks a major general of volunteers, he became, at that time, the fourth highest-ranking officer in the Union Army, junior only to Winfield Scott, John C. Fremont, and George McClellan. And although he had no military training or experience, Banks loved the soldier's life, or at least what he experienced of it as a general. As even a Confederate prisoner admitted, Banks was a, quote, faultless-looking soldier.
1: But appearances can be deceiving, and Nathaniel Banks would prove to be an incompetent general. Despite his ignorance of military affairs, Banks followed his own counsel again and again while rejecting the sound advice of his West Point-trained subordinates. One of those subordinates, Brigadier General William B. Franklin, said that, quote, an operation dependent on plenty of troops, rather than skill in handling them, was the only one which could have probability of success in his hands. End quote.
0: And in fact, Banks was amassing plenty of troops. By the end of February 1862, he would have around 38,000 men in western Maryland, with the prospect of receiving more from northwestern Virginia when and if he crossed the Potomac. That he had not already crossed the river was hardly Banks' fault. It was because his command was caught in the middle of a tug of war between the Lincoln administration and George McClellan.
1: We won't recover ground that we've already covered as far as the background to Little Mac's Peninsula campaign and his pledge to leave sufficient troops to protect Washington and how that ended up becoming the subject of a big controversy, but... But we will remind you guys of how, before all of that blew up, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton insisted that McClellan take care of some loose ends, so to speak, before embarking on his campaign to capture Richmond. And one of those issues that Stanton wanted Little Mac to attend to was protecting the line of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. That was actually perfectly all right with McClellan. He had already planned on shifting Banks' force eastward as part of the covering force for Washington, while the Army of the Potomac went off on its grand flanking maneuver, but it would require only a slight delay in those plans for Banks to first move across the Potomac, march south up the valley to Winchester, seize that place, and thus safeguard the B&O. Banks would then leave a detachment to garrison Winchester While he moved the bulk of his force eastward to help cover Washington, while little Mac went off to capture Richmond. Well, that was McClellan's plan, anyway, and in fact, McClellan said he would join Banks in the field to supervise the move against Winchester in person.
0: Banks himself was chafing to go, and he soon had his chance. On the night of February 27th, Stanton went to the White House and read Lincoln a message saying that Banks had thrown a pontoon bridge across the Potomac at Harper's Ferry and had already pushed some troops over the river and into Virginia. That was encouraging. But before reading a second message, Stanton closed the door to the room, explaining that the next piece of news was not so good. While the pontoon bridge was adequate to carry infantry and cavalry over the river, McClellan had arranged for Banks artillery and supply wagons to cross the Potomac on a sturdier structure built on a foundation of canal boats, which were arriving at Harper's Ferry by way of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. As you all recall, the canal boats, however, wouldn't fit through the exit lock and so couldn't get into the river, and so Little Mac suspended the move against Winchester.
1: The next day, in an exchange of telegraph messages with Washington, McClellan proposed that while moving equipment and supplies across the Potomac to build up Banks' force, Banks would, in the meantime, settle for occupying Charlestown and Bunker Hill, which were 40 miles northeast and 12 miles north of Winchester, respectively. The capture of those towns would serve as a stopgap measure to cover the rebuilding of the B&O.
0: Banks had little trouble capturing Charlestown and Bunker Hill, but McClellan informed Washington not to expect a move against Jackson at Winchester anytime soon. However, he assured Lincoln and Stanton that, quote, you will be satisfied when I see you, that I have acted wisely and have everything in hand.
1: Well, the President and Secretary of War were far from satisfied, but they could do little about it. In the meantime, McClellan ordered Banks to remain safely posted at Charlestown and Bunker Hill. Little Mac's inertia was finally broken by the Confederates when Joe Johnston decided that his position on the Centerville-Manassas line was at serious risk, and he began withdrawing southward to the Rappahannock River over the weekend of March 7th and 8th. McClellan quickly received news of the unexpected rebel retreat, and in response, he immediately ordered his armies to push forward on all fronts, including the Shenandoah Valley. Although given the green light to march on Winchester, Banks moved cautiously, apparently much intimidated by reports of enemy fortifications on the hills north of Winchester. But finally, on the morning of Wednesday, March 12th, Banks' troops entered the town and found that the Confederates had departed late the previous day. When other Federal officers expressed disappointment that Stonewall Jackson had been permitted to get away without a fight, Colonel Gordon predicted that, quote, this chieftain would be apt, before the war closed, to give us an entertainment up to the utmost of our aspirations, end quote.
2: On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: As with Nathaniel Banks, Colonel Gordon apparently also knew his man when it came to Stonewall Jackson since Jackson had in fact wanted to contest the Federal's advance, never mind that his current force was outnumbered more than 8 to 1 by Banks' army.
1: But on March 8th, Stonewall had asked Joe Johnston for reinforcements, and in return offered his superior the cheery prospect that, quote, a kind providence may enable us to inflict a terrible wound, end quote. Apparently Joe Johnston, in the midst of his withdrawal southward to his new line on the Rappahannock, thought Jackson's proposal was a pipe dream, for it doesn't seem he bothered to reply. Thus the orders he had issued previously to Stonewall still stood. That is, the Valley Army, while remaining west of the Blue Ridge, was to secure Johnston's left flank by preventing Banks from crossing the mountains and aiding McClellan when McClellan followed up Johnston's withdrawal as surely Little Mac would do. In short, Jackson's orders were the same as the Union General Patterson's had been back in July 1861. But while Patterson had been tasked with keeping the Confederates in the valley, now in March 1862, Stonewall's job was to keep the Federals in the Shenandoah. On March 19th, Joe Johnston reiterated the importance of Stonewall's mission by writing, quote, it is important to keep that army in the valley and that it should not reinforce McClellan. Do try to prevent it by getting and keeping as near as prudence will permit." End quote. And Jackson had every intention of keeping Banks busy. On March 11th, as his troops were pulling out of Winchester, Stonewall assumed Banks would rush into town in hot pursuit, and he planned to turn and strike the Federals in a rare night attack. But in a conference that evening with his subordinates, he discovered that his commanders were, to say the least, cool to the idea of making a surprise night attack. And besides that, the supply wagons and most of the troops had already been allowed to march too far away from Winchester to make the attack. Angered by this frustration of his plans, Jackson would turn to surgeon Hunter McGuire, his medical director, as he was leaving Winchester and vowed, That is the last council of war I will ever hold. And Stonewall kept his word on that.
0: While the rebels withdrew at a leisurely pace to Mount Jackson, about 42 miles up the valley, the Federals advanced only 18 miles past Winchester to Strasburg. There, Banks stationed 9,000 men under Brigadier General James Shields. In his book on Stonewall Jackson, titled Rebel Yell, S.C. Quinn writes that, quote, Shields was one of the more arresting personalities of the early war. Like his immediate superior, Nathaniel Banks, he was wealthy, politically powerful, and entirely self-made. Born and raised in Ireland, he sailed for America at age 16, but was shipwrecked off the coast of Scotland. He stayed in that country working as a tutor to a wealthy family. Four years later, he finally made it to New York, where he discovered that a wealthy uncle who had promised to help him had died. He briefly went to sea and eventually fetched up in Illinois, where he studied law and was admitted to the bar in 1832. He was elected to the Illinois legislature as a Democrat in 1836, the beginning of a rapid political ascent that was marred only by a smear campaign conduct- conducted against him by fellow Illinois politician, Abraham Lincoln.
1: Gwynn continues in Rebel Yell, relating how, quote, "...the smear campaign led Shields to challenge Lincoln to a duel. Lincoln apologized, and the two men somehow ended up friends." Shields became a Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court, Commissioner of the General Land Office in Washington, and a U.S. Senator from Illinois. He was a Brigadier General in the Mexican-American War, where he was twice wounded. Shields was urbane, sophisticated, confident, charming, and funny. He was also, in the words of one of his subordinate officers, glorious to the last degree. This unfortunate latter trait would destroy his Civil War career. End quote.
0: Even as Shields' division moved south to occupy Strasburg, McClellan had already set in motion his plan to shift Banks' force eastward across the Blue Ridge. One of Banks' divisions, commanded by Brigadier General John Sedgwick, left the Shenandoah, followed by Brigadier General Alpheus Williams' division. That left only Shields' division to guard the valley. But McClellan dismissed the idea that Stonewall Jackson's little force posed any credible threat, so he told Banks that a few regiments of cavalry would be enough to garrison Winchester, and a brigade of infantry would be sufficient to guard the pass through the mountains that carried the Manassas Gap Railroad.
1: And so, not even Shields' division was to stay in the valley, and on March 20th, it started pulling back from Strasburg to Winchester, and then it would follow the rest of Banks' command east. Banks himself planned to leave for a visit to Washington on March 23rd. The various federal movements were observed by Confederate cavalry led by Colonel Ashby Turner, who rather nonchalantly informed Jackson on March 21st that Banks' entire force appeared to be leaving the Valley. When Stonewall received Turner's message, it was instantly clear to him that the Yankees were in the process of doing precisely what he, Jackson, had been ordered to prevent. That is, the Federals were departing the valley in order to aid McClellan's drive on Richmond and end the war.
0: Realizing the Federals were slipping away, Stonewall had his men marching north at dawn the next day, March 22nd. In his biography of Jackson, James I. Robertson, Jr. writes, How the men marched that day was how they always marched. It was route step, in other words, walk as you please so long as you keep up with the column. Soldiers proceeded four abreast. Many units found it easier to march in some semblance of step so as to keep the ranks moving steadily without men stumbling over the heels of one another. Each man carried his musket and equipment any way that was comfortable. Whatever rations a soldier had consisted of what he had prepared in the early morning darkness before the day's march began.
1: Robertson continues, Jackson would occasionally leave the head of the march and ride the length of the column to check on progress. Press on, press on, is all he said, but he did so with urgency. The files moved steadily forward. Men by the scores soon dropped along the way from exhaustion. Wagons fell miles behind the infantry, who soon and proudly would call themselves Jackson's foot cavalry. Cleon Moore of the 2nd Virginia remembered the events of that Saturday. The head of the column moved towards Winchester. We were in high spirits. Suffice to say, we made a forced march that resulted in aching limbs, sore feet, empty stomachs. For one day and a half, we marched as only Jackson's men could march. End quote.
0: Despite cold winds and mud, most units covered 21 miles that day. The rear regiments trudged 27 miles before bivouacking in the vicinity of Cedar Creek. Jackson made his headquarters in Strasbourg, close to the advanced elements of his little army, and true to his vow to never again hold a council of war, that night he sought the guidance of no one but God.
1: Knowing Stonewall, he doubtless did spend a good part of the nighttime hours on his knees in prayer, and he had plenty to be thankful for. His command, in spite of heavy straggling, was now within a day's march of Winchester and the enemy.
0: While Stonewall Jackson's infantry hastened northward, the Confederate cavalry, led by Turner Ashby, had clashed with the Federals four miles south of Winchester, in the vicinity of tiny Kernstown. On Saturday the 22nd, Ashby's little band of horsemen ran into some Union cavalry there south of Winchester, but as the Rebel troopers pursued the Yankees, they ran into additional Federal cavalry, artillery, and even infantry. Ashby continued to press the fight, though, and although he only had three artillery pieces with him, one of those guns struck a telling blow when a shell fragment fractured James Shields' left arm above the elbow.
1: The feisty Shields was furious that he had been wounded in a mere skirmish, but as as he was removed from the field in an ambulance and evacuated to Winchester, he was forced to turn command of the ongoing skirmish and of the division, over to his senior brigade commander, Colonel Nathan Kimball. Little is known of Kimball's early life. In fact, it's not known for certain whether he was born in 1822 or 1823. It is known that Kimball, from Indiana, had attempted to make a living as a teacher and a farmer before opting to study medicine in 1843. He left his practice in 1846 in order to serve in the Mexican War, Recaptained a company of Hoosiers during the desperate combat at the Battle of Buena Vista. After returning to civilian life, Kimball practiced medicine for over a decade until the firing on Fort Sumter. After raising a company of local men, he became Colonel of the 14th Indiana, did well in that post, and was promoted to brigade command. And then late on the afternoon of Saturday, March 22nd, he took over command of the division from the injured Shields.
0: With relatively few Union troops involved in the engagement on Saturday afternoon, Kimball settled for using the Federal's superior artillery power to drive off Ashby, and the Confederate horsemen withdrew south to Newtown. From that place, Turner Ashby sent a piece of dangerously mistaken intelligence back to Stonewall Jackson. Despite the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D.'s entire division, some 9,000 men, was still at Winchester, Ashby came to believe from his just-concluded clash with the few Federal units and from erroneous information supplied by friendly townspeople that only four enemy regiments were still in Winchester and that they had been ordered to retreat down the valley to Harper's Ferry the next day. The mistaken and misinformed Ashby duly sent this news on to Jackson, along with the claim that, in Saturday's skirmish, if he had possessed but a regiment of infantry, he could dr- have driven the Yankees from the field and captured Winchester.
1: Based on Ashby's message and on a couple of other pieces of intelligence that also seemed to indicate the complete withdrawal of Banks' army from the valley. Stonewall Jackson was convinced that he could attack the small federal force that lingered at Winchester. Due to heavy straggling on Saturday's march, Jackson's force, which had started out as little more than the size of a division, had shrunk to the size of a brigade. Stonewall likely had fewer than 3,500 weary men with him in the Strasburg area on Saturday night. Nevertheless, based on Ashby's message, and the other intelligence he'd received, Jackson was sure he could strike a blow against the relatively few Yankees remaining at Winchester.
0: Keep in mind that Stonewall certainly realized that with Banks' force leaving the valley, he was on the verge of failing in his mission to keep the enemy tied down. So really, striking at the few Federals remaining at Winchester was the only move left to him. If he could overwhelm them and raise enough havoc afterward— Perhaps, just perhaps, Banks' move eastward would be halted and the Yankees would be turned around back to the valley to deal with Jackson's tiny but troublesome command.
1: And so, although Jackson knew his numbers had dwindled and his men were fatigued from Saturday's forced march, he was still confident he could overwhelm a mere four enemy regiments and perhaps yet do some good for Joe Johnston by drawing Banks' force back to the valley. Stonewall therefore passed orders for his tired troops to be ready to resume their march northward at daybreak on Sunday morning.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is National Geographic's Atlas of the Civil War, edited by Neil Kagan, with text by Stephen Hyslop.
1: You already know that we're big on maps. Recently, we've recommended two Civil War atlases to you, and now we'll add a third into the mix, here with National Geographic's Atlas of the Civil War. Uh, Having a map handy is especially important to understanding what's going on with Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, since there is going to be so much marching and counter-marching and more marching, hither and yon, going on. And a map of the valley will let you find the places we're going to be talking about, like Winchester and Strasbourg and McDowell and Port Republic, and you can see how Massanutten Mountain divides the valley and understand how the valley turnpike is so important, and find the passes through the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, well, you get the picture.
0: Something you may have already noticed in the podcast narrative is that the northward flow of the San Andoa River towards Harper's Ferry gives rise to terms of reference peculiar to the valley. To travel north is to go down the valley. To journey south is to go up. Similarly, the northern portion of the region is the lower valley, while the southern stretches are the upper valley.
1: Exactly. And this can be especially confusing for those of you, like Tracy, who are, um, directionally challenged anyway. (laughs) Hey! Anyway, we really like this National Geographic Atlas of the Civil War uh, in spite of, or maybe because of the fact, it's quite a bit different format than those other two atlases we've recommended. Uh, It's big for one thing, which is nice, but it also combines several dozen excellent National Geographic maps with historical maps, so you can see how Civil War-era cartographers viewed the conflict. And then throughout the book, there are also timelines and orders of battle and other special features that are just outstanding, so we really can't say enough good things about this atlas and highly recommend it to you guys.
0: You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap things up for this show, we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome this week, Mary and Brian.
0: And then we also want to thank Michael C. from North Carolina and David M. from Illinois for their donations this past week. Thanks, y'all.
1: And as always, we're eternally grateful to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music we use to open and close each episode of the podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time for the Battle of Kernstown, when Stonewall Jackson attacks what he thinks is just the Union rear guard, but runs into Shield's entire division. So that'll be next time, but until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.